children, certainly, you may be dismissed. I should probably move my microphone here so maybe it uh, can be more legible. Heard? Not legible. Audible. That's what I'm looking for. So, all right, Sean, let's turn down the lights. Let's put on that smooth jazz music I was talking about. Oh, I'm, I'm teasing. I could talk in my, uh, let me see. Uh, how low, how low, low, low can I go? Can I get to Barry White? That's, that's where my goal is for today. If you've seen the back of the bulletin, that's where I'm trying to go. I, uh... Just don't want to hurt my voice in that way. <laughs> so, praise the Lord, certainly, and especially how deep is the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. And today, hopefully, help uh, encourage us, help us stand in that truth. And I wanted to start off this way. As we're the church, one of the things that we're called is the bride of Christ, which means we're married to Christ, who is the anointed one, which we've come to know as Jesus. God created marriage to show the intimate relationship between Christ and his church. We've taken it. We've added to it. We've certainly become married ourselves. Fill the earth and subdue it all the way from Genesis chapter 1. And so as we are his church, our Father's our provider, our supporter, our encourager. And as you'll see from the text, certainly there is a, a little bit of give and take, but it's all God giving and us taking <laughs> for the most part. Because that is who He is. That is His nature. That is His love. That steadfast love I've talked about the last couple of weeks too kind of still hammers home because it's a covenant commitment to us. It's loyal love. It's unfailing love. And then if we go to agape as well, it's an actionable type of love and it's a sacrificial type of love. And it's a love that loves because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't look for things in return. But by all means, when you've tasted and seen that the Lord's good and you've felt his love and appreciated his love, it changes a man. And a woman. My apologies. <laughs> but in that change to us, certainly let us glorify God in this moment. Let us see all of the blessings that he's given us, especially as we continue through these psalms, which are emotional. It's the emotions of the Israelites. It's the truth of the Israelites, too. It's their experiences given to us that we may reflect and see God's theology and truth in an applicable light for us to walk, and to walk in the light. So praise the Lord for all of these things already. Maybe I could just stop now, but there's still so much more. Dear Heavenly Father, certainly, as always, I thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially those that we fail to see. But Lord Jesus, we certainly don't fail to see the love you have for us individually, as well as corporately, as your bride of Christ. So, Lord Jesus, as we approach your word, certainly tune our hearts and our minds to your will. May this be certainly for your glory and our good, and may your love shine through each of us, and may it embrace and hold our hearts high. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 139. 
What? 579. Thank you, gentlemen. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of Israel, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This first point, this first section, as you see, I've broken it down into four different points for you. To be intimately known. And we are intimately known. Those first six stanzas, six verses, definitely highlight that. Even what I've been talking about, Psalm 33. You've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path lying down. And then in Psalm 33, in verse 13 and 14 and 15, we read, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. 
He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all of their deeds. And then I know I quote this a lot, Hebrews 4.12, which talks about the word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. But I always leave off the next verse because it's, it's hard. But the next verse says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I find this, especially in my years in the faith, I've looked at this as two different ways. The very first way, it's creepy. It's absolutely creepy. And I find that, that perhaps in part of my immaturity in knowing Christ, I'm like, I don't want you to know that. I don't need you to know that. Let's be real. We're, some of us are married in real life. Do our partners necessarily know everything about us? The answer is no. <laughs> it's impossible. I don't know that you've had all those conversations. Uh, it's kind of funny. I don't know. Maybe I was convicted. Maybe I was just having a day. But my wife came home on Friday night, saw that I was kind of heavy. And I was for I don't even know why of a reason. But what happened later was kind of funny to me because I started confessing things from my childhood. <laughs> I started telling her about the kind of guy she married. And granted, it was 20-some years after the fact or whatnot that she came to the point. And of course, what is the past is certainly the past. But at the same time, I was talking about what kind of thief I was, what kind of adulterer I was, what kind of, you know, all different types of things. And I'm like, this is odd. It's a little awkward. It kind of lent to the creepy because it came out of nowhere, came out of the blue, right? But as I've become more mature in the faith, there is nothing more comforting to me than to know that I'm well known and to know that I'm accepted as who I am, regardless of the mistakes that I've made in my past, to be able to stand here today and to be used by God. Because he wanted me to, not necessarily because I wanted to, because he did in the moment. And so I find also in that very same creepy, comfortable kind of, you know, balance that maybe we have in immaturity, maturity, I also find it, it had to do a little bit with sin. It had to deal with, do I feel condemned? Is that why I want to hide? I think back to Adam and Eve, and remember after they ate the fruit of the tree, the very first thing is they realized they were naked, guilt and shame, and they hid. That's one of the aspects of sin, the iniquity of it, is that there's guilt and shame associated with it. So if I'm not looking forward to God knowing all about me or anything like that, what am I trying to hide? And I find it very punctual, too, that Grace Day 4 had a lot to do with this. If you've read the book and you've read certainly every one of the days, it had a lot to do with us hiding in the darkness. We want freedom, and freedom is being known, but unfortunately we chain ourselves to our sins and want to hide behind those sins. So one of the most greatest things, of course, that we know about our Lord is that he's greater than everything. And in 1 John, 
the letter, 1 John, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, talks about us a little bit. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our own heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Praise the Lord. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So those moments of condemnation that, you know, we've made mistakes. Everyone in this room has. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I don't think anybody here is going to be casting stones. And in light of that, just to very simply be convicted in that. But more so, the glory of us being known, and especially the glory of us being intimately known, is that we can be forgiven. And isn't that one of the most amazing parts of the gospel message? And especially as we're singing those songs. What did we do? <laughs> we scoffed. We ridiculed, we mocked, and yet he still pursued us, still came after us, which is the second point, but I'm not there yet. Forgiveness of our sin came through, of course, our Lord Jesus, and of course, him being our high priest and the one that's able to atone for sins, that perfect spotless lamb that you see in the window over there, that once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of mankind, that ultimate, again, forgiveness that we need as human beings. And we don't necessarily see that, and it seems to be at a premium these days that people will be willing to forgive other people. It's much easier just to condemn them and write them off rather than to forgive them. But as we're the church, as we're his people, we're going to grow in this because we know we've been forgiven, and we've been forgiven even when we didn't deserve to be forgiven. And it's within that vein of thought that continues our intimate relationship with God. And as much as we said in our group this week, and as much as maybe we need to hear, even though, again, talking about election, but ultimately, you must understand, God chose you. He chose you. Like, that's amazing. It's amazing, right? And so in, in the group, we got a little crazy because I did talk about my past and how that can certainly go a little crazy into your head, in your pride, because God chose me and not you. And that goes wrong. <laughs> it will always land wrong, and it will always land wrong. But there's a very humbling and acceptance type of feeling, especially as we consider this intimate relationship with the Lord that he created for us to have with him. And he's restoring it each and every day. So, moving on. The second point, intimately pursued. Verse 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know you're intimately known. You know ultimately that you're intimately loved. But did you know you're intimately pursued? And you were intimately pursued because God chose you. And in verse 7 through 10, while I don't find necessarily this story 
intimate, I can't help but always think of Jonah in this moment and those three verses, seven, eight, nine, or four verses, seven, eight, nine, and ten. He was hiding. He wanted to run away from God. Do you know why he wanted to run away from God? He wanted to run away from God because he didn't want to save people he didn't like. Does that sound familiar? I think so. And honestly, even as we look today, I find a lot of the same things uh, kind of happening in the world. There's just, especially when you consider Israel, the whole nature of Jonah was to go to save a people that oppressed them. He was going to go to Nineveh. And he's like, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to save those people. I don't want to help those people. I want nothing to do with those people. I'd rather just eradicate those people. Why don't you eradicate those people? And again, our Lord is so different from us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But he didn't want to go. So Jonah is like, well, I'm just going to run away to the farthest place that I can think of. And that was Tarshish. But he didn't get there. He didn't get there because God continued to pursue him in an effort to use him and in an effort to use his people. And God showed his love for human beings, not because of their ideology, but very simply because they were human beings created in his image. Even though they weren't, quote unquote, his people and the nation of Israel, the Ninevites were still human beings created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. And so now this brings us to us, as we've certainly known that story of Jonah. What does your conversion testimony look like? How did God pursue you and wake you up to the reality of his existence? Were there any coincidences that you couldn't explain. Because a coincidence is a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. And even when we say coincidences, there is a cultural phenomenon called a God wink that maybe we've heard about, where God and certain, wow, I can't believe this just happened. I was literally just praying about it and it happened. Like, I wanted someone to talk to about Jesus, and presto changeo, there's someone to talk to about Jesus. Praise the Lord. It's His providence at the root of it. The providence is God's interaction within our lives, and it continues to pursue us. And I think that's the beauty of what a lot of us struggle with, too in God's pursuit because of your waywardness. Your waywardness. All we like sheep are led astray, each one to our own way. And that's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis for the most part. We're wayward in some way. So, you move on to verse 11 and 12 and we talk about darkness and light. And very simply, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Evil doesn't win. For darkness is as light with you. It gets exposed. All the darkness comes to the light. 
And we still see that going on right now in today's world. There's lots of darkness being exposed to the light. But in our own rebelliousness, if you will, man chose the darkness over the light. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16 through 20, talks pretty extensively about that, how God sent his only Son into the world, not to condemn them, but to save them. But unfortunately, the judgment came. And man desired the darkness more than the light because their works were evil. It's not so. It's not so in the pursuits and the change. And again, God's not out to shame you. He's out to restore, forgive, and redeem you. And that's what he does on a day-to-day basis. But there's always a give and take, right? Always a give and take. God is constantly giving. We're constantly taking. But in the very same way, turn to the Lord. Follow the light. It's just that simple. God's got the plan. He's got the idea on where he wants you to go. But is there a willingness to follow him? Or is there just that dark rebellion within us to be like, that's nice, but, and then I'm going to go my own way. So, brothers and sisters, in our rebelliousness, in our waywardness, in our need certainly for forgiveness, we are intimately known and we are intimately pursued by he who loves us. Now, one of my most favorite parts, we're intimately created. I'm a big fan of apologetics, but I also know that it doesn't necessarily change hearts and minds. Only Jesus does that. I'm happy to stand on whatever rock I need to stand and spew whatever facts I need to spew. Science and religion don't oppose each other. They, quite frankly, work hand in hand. In fact, from my perspective, science is the slow revelation of God's creation because it informs us how things work. And if you're ever informed on how things work, there has to be a sense of wow inside of us. There must be, unless we've lost that because we've worshipped too many other things. And now the beauty of creation doesn't necessarily look so beautiful anymore. Doesn't appeal to us, doesn't have any certain kind of charm. And so, as he says here, verse 13, 14, and 15, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This could be intimately known as well, but for us, certainly intimately created. In verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. How many inward parts do you have? Do you any of you know? Do any of you care? <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Because I'm going to. I just try to phrase it politely. May I ask you a question? What are the five organs that if you lose them, or if they stop functioning, you die? 
brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys. Those are the top five. Praise the Lord that you know those. Now, tell me, how well do you control those? All the time? Right. Right. Yes. Hold your breath. Hold your breath, and then your you know, anti-self-destruct system will come into play, and you'll start breathing again. You can't make your lungs stop. You can't make your heart stop. You can't make your brain, and it's 177,000 electrical impulses every second, I believe it is, that uh, you can't do. What, what do you do? How do you do? What do you, what, what do you, what do you have? Tell me what you got. How, how do you reconcile this? Here's, here's my issue, is that people say we're a mistake. They believe in not intelligent design. They believe in something like a Big Bang Theory, or from the goo to the zoo to you, which is called evolution. From the goo to the zoo to you. Remember it, because that's the reality of the existence of life for some people. We start as a little single-celled nothing, and somehow that single-celled nothing splits into another one, and then presto, change We have, you know, 40,000 different types of flowers, 10,000 different types of trees, 8 billion different human beings on this planet. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And you really think from a single-celled little nothing, all this has happened. This is why I always tell people, you must start from a position of intelligent design because to say that we're an accident insults yourself and everybody else on this planet. Don't let it happen. And when people bring it up, which they're most apt not to these days, because, meh, whatever reason, there must be intelligent design. Now, how you get to Jesus outside of that intelligent design is because he's the only one that's not like a human God. He's the only one that's completely countercultural from us. If you've studied any of the other gods, they sound just like us. They fight, they go to war, they hate, they curse, they maim, they destroy every one of them. Was Jesus like that? Not at all. And in fact, rather than religion of trying to climb up the spiritual ladder, Jesus, in his counterculturalness, came down the ladder to do what we couldn't do. And so, in this vein of certainly creation, and now that you know that certainly all those organs and everything like that were created in the image of God, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Created them. It's very simple. That was Genesis 1.27. It's the first song in the Bible, if you will. It's just one verse, and it was a song. And Moses sang it. Now, verse 16 and 17. Continuing in this created part. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. 
Revelation speaks of the book of life six times. The book of Philippians has one verse that talks about the book of life. Revelation also talks about many other books being kept, not just the book of life. And in fact, this isn't necessarily the reference of the book of life, because in the book of life, if your name is written in it, you get into heaven, because you are Christ's. But in those other books, the people are all judged by their works because they threw away the only chance of redemption and atonement for sins and forgiveness of sins that every human being on the planet has. And that only chance is Jesus. And in that only chance of Jesus, if you don't know him, and have that relationship with him as God has laid out here to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that salvation only comes through him, then you're left with all your works. And I want you to know this too. God's judgment, he's holy, can't, well, I can't say can't. He deals with sin. He deals with it. He addresses it. He handles it. This is why Jesus came, right, in the first place. If you've sinned once, you're guilty. Period. There was nothing written in here which baffles my mind as to why people think by going to confession and saying ten Hail Marys and doing all these other things, why that is atonement for sin. Because we saw ancient Israel needing to atone for sin. And they had high priests do that, elected people and officials who sacrificed animals, and it was by the blood that the sin was cleansed. And so we have a once-for-all sacrifice in our Lord Jesus, who is that perfect, spotless Lamb of God that went to the cross on our behalf. But what a tragedy for everyone else, that your own works and you stand guilty and here has this offer, and God's hand been held out to a wicked and ungrateful people. That's not good enough. Your free salvation is all wrong by earthly standards. I must earn it. I have to earn it. Otherwise, I'm not good enough. Intimately created. I pray especially for myself and all of us and that those that are in Christ, especially seeing this text, that you never, ever say you're not good enough as you are. It's serious. And I think about our youth these days. And I think about how they, unfortunately, are told constantly they are not good enough. God made you the way that you are. How can I say you are not good enough when you're created in the image of God? Have you gone wayward? Have you embraced the darkness rather than the light? I suppose is the real question. And we can see the works of people's lives by the fruit of their lives. Do you see love, joy, peace, patience? Are their kids happy with them? Are they rebellious? Well, aside from teenagers, let's be real. Are, are they... Like, because all teenagers are rebellious, right? But, but 
Do they have a relationship with their parents? Do they, you know, again, all these different things. Look at the fruits of someone's life. And then knowing certainly the fruit of the life. Verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Reminds me of Romans 11, 33 to 36, which was taken from a lot of different psalms and put together. And it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. How true is that? And in this moment, as the psalmist starts off, verse 17, I think, I think we can look at it kind of as a tongue twister in a sense, but how precious to me are your thoughts. Now, we can look at it in two different ways. Precious to me, God's thoughts. But I like to look at it this way. God thinks about me. How amazing is that? Are you kidding me? God cares and thinks about me. The guy who has everything, quite literally, for from him and to him and through him are all things. The world exists because of his love. And he thinks and he cares about me. You should all say that to yourselves right now. He thinks and he cares about me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that another reason to praise the Lord? Wow. I struggled to care about me. And the creator of heaven and earth cares about me. Phenomenal. Intimately created. With meaning and purpose. And please don't ever tell yourself you're not good enough. You just have different skills and talents than other people as well. And it's within that that you should rejoice for this. And the very last part, I awake and I am still with you. I awake and I am still with you. How intimate is that? How near he is at all points in times. How he has not abandoned us. How we have the unfortunate liberty to walk away from him but how he has not abandoned us at any stretch of our lives. You go to sleep, you're certainly in your most vulnerable, right? You have no idea what's going on around you. Someone sneak in, hurt you, do all kinds of things. God's with you. He's going to carry you home if he has to, which he does. <laughs> so lastly, intimately loved and at first, when you read this, you're like, what? How is this intimately loved? Just talking about hating people, talking about fighting with them, talking about asking God to kill these people that don't like him. I want to, you to consider those that are married. 
Do you fight for your spouse the same way? Or are you tearing them down? I think that's the key of this. Some people are like, man, they just added this on because it doesn't fit at all at the end of Psalm 139. Someone just wrote these and added it on. It wasn't the original psalmist. People have tried all kinds of different ways to discredit this, but I just think we miss it. We miss it from the point that very simply, the guy loves God. And we know David wrote this, so maybe it's just easier to say, David loves Jesus. David loves Jesus. I'm tired of hearing people badmouth my Lord. Any of you feel that way? Like, it's, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. I don't like hearing it at all. You know, from the simple things to hearing someone blaspheme his name across a room that makes me want to scream out, what does he have to do with this? To mutilating and trying to impose your laws on other people. And it's nuts. It's gotten crazy out there. Not that that's surprising, because we all know too from Revelation, it's only getting worse till Jesus comes back. So if you're waiting for things to get better, why? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Makes no sense why we would wait for things to get better. But in this, just especially notice verse 19 to 20 through, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. But here's what they do. They speak against you with malicious intent. The enemies take your name in vain. They hate God, so therefore hates him, or, or he hates them back. And he loathes those who rise up against you, hates them with complete hatred, counts them his enemies. Again, in its simplified sense, I would say it's defending your spouse. I would hope, certainly, in our marriages, we're defending one another if someone speaks ill of the other rather than tearing each other down. But I can always tell what marriages are going to fail because they tear each other down. It's as plain as day. But this marriage, the marriage that we have with Christ, is not guaranteed to fail. It's guaranteed to succeed. The sheep hear my voice and know my name, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once you've been saved in Christ, redeemed in Christ, know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there is a guarantee for us and our future. Doesn't mean we won't stumble at times, but all in all, we have these promises of God, and we hold on to those in everything that we do, every action we make, from the silly, simple decisions to choose the sugary drink or the non-sugary drink, the red popsicle or the blue popsicle, to major life decisions, hopefully the Lord's a part of those because it's togetherness. And remember the great co-mission, to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Not to pick and choose, but all nations. And very simply to go and to be a part of what God is doing. And that is our response, if anything. And the willingness that's within us, that means a lot. I can't tell you how much that means to me as a shepherd, and I can only imagine how much that willingness means to God as your creator and as your groom. 
as your provider and your protector, as the one who loves you more than you love yourself. And that says a lot. But it's that willingness to walk in his ways. And we can't make that happen. I can't bark orders at anybody and say, hey, be willing. In fact, if I do such things, the natural inclination is to go the other way because of sin. Who are you to tell me i got to be willing? I'll show you willing. Isn't that what we do? Am I wrong? So, I find it interesting how the psalmist closes it, especially after his vitriol, after his kind of hate speech. He's like, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Found one. <laughs> right there, found one. This hate, it's a problem. But lead me in the way everlasting. And isn't that the psalmist's cry? Isn't that all of our cries? Help me to walk in your way everlasting. Help me. And you know who's willing to help us? Jesus. Amazing. It's just amazing. And so... This intimately loved section, too. I wrote those little notes. I, I, it's like, people struggle with forgiveness. People struggle with forgiveness. Now, I'm not talking about human interactions. I'm talking about with God. People struggle that God can forgive them. I have done horrible things in my life and in my past. There is no way God would forgive me. But he does. He does. I have been rebellious. I am wayward way too much. But God pursues. And He loves me. And even in my rebelliousness and my enmity with Him, He still pursues and chases because of love. Intimately created. The issue some people think they're not good enough or they're made wrong. They're wrong. God made you. You are good enough. Always have been. Always will be. But you know who's going to tell you you're not good enough? First and foremost, it's yourself. And secondly, it's those closest to you. It's going to be your family. It's going to be your brothers and sisters. It's going to be your friends. And it's junk. Quit listening to it. You are good enough. Keep at it. Stick with Jesus. He changes lives. And then intimately loved. How many of us at times feel unworthy of God's love? How many times do we long to belong? To feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. And yet he's called us and created us to be the church. A place where you always belong. But it's hard to get here, right? Maybe you don't need belonging. Maybe you need acceptance. Acceptance for who you are. Because a lot of people are telling you what was said before. That you're just not good enough. You're terrible at everything you do. Why do you even exist? 
Ask that guy why you exist. Ask that guy why he loves you so much. Ask that guy why you're worthy when you feel unworthy. Two wonders here that I confess. This is a quote from a song. We didn't sing it today, but two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. My values fixed, my ransoms paid at the cross. While the world is hostile towards you and will continue to be hostile towards you all your days of this life, remember who's not. And remember who died for you. Remember who loves you with a love that is greater than any love you've ever experienced before in your life. A love that says you're worthy. A love that says you're good enough. A love that says you belong. A love that says you're accepted. A love that says you're forgiven. And a love that certainly says that despite your rebelliousness towards me, I still love you. And ponder that today. Ponder that in this psalm. Ponder that in many other psalms as well. But we are definitely intimately created to be intimately known, to be intimately pursued, and to be intimately loved by our Lord. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I cannot thank you enough for the love that you've shown each and every one of us here in this room. The compassion that you show us, the empathy that you build within us, and then, of course, the fruits of the Spirit that you bless us with. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control. Against all of those things, Lord Jesus, there is no law, because those are righteous and holy and good. And so, Lord, continue to build these within us. Continue to tune our hearts and our minds to your will. Continue to strengthen us. Continue to change us for your glory, ultimately, Lord Jesus, and our good as your people. And as we love you and continue to seek you, my heart's greatest cry for the rest of the world as well as us is that more and more people may come to know your grace and your goodness and the truth of your gospel, that it's not earned it's a free gift given. And that certainly, come Lord Jesus, is the other half of that. May we be used to bring others to salvation, and certainly may we continue to advance your kingdom however you would have us, as we certainly desire for you, Lord Jesus, to come back and to be a part of our lives in word and deed, in truth and in love and grace. In your name we pray, amen.